0: This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast.
1: You were probably paying attention to news somewhere, hopefully here on CHML or at the spec.com or I don't know where, uh, earlier today when news broke that a plane had crashed in the Tampa area, in the Gulf of Mexico area, Florida, and the plane belonged to Roy Halladay. And of course, that led to all kinds of people saying, oh, geez, I hope it's not Roy Halladay in the plane. Well, as it turns out, yes, it is. Roy Halladay, one of... Maybe the, I don't know. We'll find out. Uh, One of the great pitchers in Blue Jays history, one of the greatest players in Blue Jays history was on board. He was pronounced dead. Uh, It is a huge loss. He just recently was inducted into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. It is a big story. It is based on what we're hearing from other major league players today on social media. A huge, huge blow to the game. Ken Fidlin is a long-time, was a long-time Toronto Sun sports writer who spent much of his time covering the Toronto Blue Jays, years covering the Blue Jays. He was one of the very, very best baseball writers in the business. Uh, as it turns out, as we like, he's also a local guy from Ancaster, so that makes him even uh, even smarter, obviously. But uh, Ken covered Roy Halladay for a long time. Ken joins you. Now. Ken, how are you tonight?
2: I'm a little saddened that this is probably uh, one of the uh, toughest days uh any baseball fan in Canada uh, has had in a while.
1: Well, it it absolutely is surreal. Uh, And there's other words, too, but when a young guy who seems like he was just playing, like he hasn't been retired that long, but uh, when we cover him, when we've watched him, is suddenly gone, it is a surreal thing. And when I called you this afternoon, and as it turns out, I think I may have sort of broken the news to you this afternoon, but when you first heard that Roy Halladay had been the one that had died, and it started to go through your head. What what jumps to mind about Roy Halladay first? What's the first thing that leaps into your head?
2: Well, um, other than the fact that he's gone too soon. Of at the age of forty, he still had half his life to look forward to, and I think I think you would have seen him back in baseball uh, very shortly. I, I went, as soon as his boys uh, get out of high school, I or got out of would have gotten out of high school. I'm sure that he would have been uh, he would have been back in the game in some capacity. So, that's uh, that's kind of what I uh, what I uh, what I thought about initially.
1: A lot of people today talking and using the phrase that he was the best Blue Jay pitcher ever. Do you agree with that? Was he their best ever?
2: Yeah, yeah, he was. He for uh, so many of the years that he pitched in Toronto, he was just about the only thing you would want to go to the ballpark <laughs> that's for. That's true. Uh, that's true. There were uh, you know there were a lot of lean years, and yet. Uh, he was—he just uh, was dominant throughout that period.
1: Is he up? I can't remember. Is he up on their wall of, of the honor, or the level of honor?
2: Uh, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Think I, don't, so. know. I but, don't think he is yet.
1: I suspect that will come yes. sooner rather than later. Now, especially, but well, I mean, where? Okay, let's go broader than that. If he's their best pitcher ever, were there any? Were there players who would you put ahead of him as far as greatest Blue Jays of all time? Oh
2: boy, um, Alomar maybe. Yeah, Robbie Alomar is probably the number one player that ever played for the Blue Jays. Uh, but uh, Roy is right there in the conversation. It's it's you know Carlos Delgado was another one. Uh, there there have been uh, quite a few over the years who were who were uppermost in people's minds. But Roy was right there with all of them.
1: Why was he so good? You saw him up close. You saw him pitch an awful lot of times. Why was he so good?
2: Well, first of all, I don't think I've ever seen uh, a, a, a player or a pitcher uh, any more prepared. Every time he went onto the field, he was he was uh, stunningly composed. He was uh, he was. I, I guess a lot of people would say aloof, but he uh, he was so prepared. Every time he went out there, he concentrated. He he was uh, the day he pitched. Uh, you could not walk. You could not go close to him he was he was that focused and that uh that into it so uh, he i i think that was part of it i mean obviously he had all the physical talent and uh but he also held, he he struggled early in his career mm. uh, i mean he actually went back all the way to A ball in i think it was 2001 and uh you know, they they made a few tweaks, of, and uh, and he lowered his arm angle. And he, when he came back to the uh, to the big leagues in July of that year, I think he was off to the races. He, he, The rest was history.
1: It's funny you mention that story, because that of course has been told many, many, many times today, and, I, and it's it's certainly reached mythical status almost. The, you know, the time that Roy Halliday was sent all the way back. Is that overblown? Or when you look at other pitchers and how they, the great pitchers and where they came from, is that really a wildly unique story of how he achieved that level of success?
2: Oh, I, I don't think it's unique. I think a lot of pitchers take a few steps forward and then a few steps back before they really get it. Um, I think uh, I think Roy was always considered to be a premier talent, and uh, but uh, he just needed to. He needed a few tweaks. It, Mel Queen got a hold of him at double A and and lowered his arm angle, and that that really changed everything for Roy. Instead of missing up and down he was missing side to side and that's where he was getting a lot of swings and misses so it was a it was a big change for him and that, but he but he really put in the work and uh, as I say I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody who worked any harder than him Jose Bautista might have come close but but uh, Roy was just so dialed in
1: but you get so lucky when you work hard don't you
2: yeah, that's, isn't that a funny thing? <laughs> it really
1: is amazing, isn't it? There's so much luck for those guys that put in that extra work. You know, it's an interesting story because I remember talking to John Axford, who's another local guy, of course, a major league pitcher, was a closer, still is a closer, and when he had all kinds of problems, he went down to the minors, and the same pitching coach, Mel Queen, who had fixed Roy Halladay, did the exact same thing with him, and it obviously, not to the same degree, but it got him to the big leagues. I'm wondering how many other guys looked at the Roy Halladay Model and said, "Well, why don't I just do that then?"
2: Well, uh, I think there's. It's a. It's. I, I heard Buck Martinez talking about it today, and he, he said, "Well, there have been a lot of guys who've tried to do it the same way as Roy." they just don't get it done and uh, that's, it's he he was he was special he was really special
1: what really surprises me because the the story behind what he changed was that the angle that he threw the ball rather than going right over the top in a, like a traditional baseball style he went not quite sidearm but almost three quarters so many guys if they dramatically change how they throw end up just getting themselves hurt
2: yeah, that's true, and and he was about as durable as that as they come. Which
1: was amazing to me.
2: Yeah, it was uh, it was remarkable. He, I mean, I, I think the only he had a couple of things. He had a, he he broke a bone in his leg uh, uh, with a batted ball. He, right. Uh, yes. Had a, yeah. He had a an appendectomy, but other than that, I mean, he had very few arm problems at least until the latter years in uh, Philadelphia
1: the the work ethic you talk about when you were around um did did you get the sense that it rubbed off on other guys i mean no one he, my understanding is he was never going to let anyone work harder than him but did it rub off to the point where it pushed the entire level of the team
2: well um the only guy i would say that uh, that i know of i mean i think he i think he had an influence on quite a few pitchers over the years but he was not a mentor he was not the kind of guy who would Sit down in the corner and talk pitching with a half a dozen of the young guys. He just wasn't that wasn't his who he was, but the one guy I remember was AJ Burnett, and mm-hmm. AJ made sure that he lockered right next to Roy in spring training, and he would try to keep up with him on his workouts. He would he could never he could never do it, so, but he uh, he tried to be like Roy through uh, uh... I guess it would have been I don't know it's two thousand and seven two thousand and eight. Uh, when they were the two, you know, they were the two bell cows on that, uh, on that pitching staff. And, and I think AJ became a better pitcher, uh, through the last part of his career simply because he, he watched and listened and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, took Roy's example.
1: You had mentioned that he was not a really chatty guy to the media, certainly, and and you sort of alluded to the fact that he wasn't necessarily a chatty guy with his teammates. His teammates, from what you understood, didn't have that much better luck getting to really crack the veneer?
2: No, and uh, there was, um, you know, there was a. I remember the year after he was traded, that's the next spring, there were some of the guys were, you know, let it be known that they weren't all that unhappy that he wasn't around. Anymore because uh, they were they had felt intimidated by him, I you know I I would I would tend to discount that as a as a, a legitimate criticism because Roy was always put the team first and uh, and and he his figuring was that if he pitched well then he was putting the team first
1: so. It is uh, it is obviously secondary to what has happened today, but I couldn't help but think because we've heard this in the past. And Jose Fernandez was at the be- was at the beginning of last year only, or two years ago now, that Jose Fernandez died. I, I think I, it was last year. Yeah, you lose track, but you you start to realize the, these guys, these athletes, they have lots of money. They have they they live they like to do fast things. There's a reason why a lot of these guys during their playing days have clauses in their contracts that preclude them from. Behaviors like this; these are, you know, it's it, these are the kind of things, and they're tragic and they're horrible. But you understand now why teams have these things written in.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, it goes back to Thurman Munson back of in course, the seventies. For yep. he, he was, uh, he was a great catcher with the uh, Yankees, and he died in a plane crash. And and that was he was still playing at the time. But uh, uh, Roy, Roy, I mean, he didn't he didn't take this up until after his playing days were done. Uh, I, I think he may have had a, a a pilot's license in his teenage years but he he didn't, he didn't uh, take advantage of it.
1: His uh, father was a pilot, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's true.
1: Just before I let you go, Ken, uh, one of the things that really struck me today because so much of the social media and the comments and everything else that have been flowing in have also been from Philadelphia and here in the Toronto area we think of Roy Halladay primarily as a Toronto Blue Jay down there, they see him primarily as a Philadelphia Philly, and certainly you could argue that his biggest moments, the uh, perfect game and no-hitter in the playoffs, came in a Phillies uniform to the broader public. Forgetting the border that, you know, we're in Canada and so people don't pay attention, all that stuff, where will most people think of Roy Halladay when they think back about him as a pitcher?
2: Well, if you're talking about most people as Americans, uh, I would say that they will remember the uh, playoff no-hitter and the perfect game and and... The the fact that he took the uh, helped the uh, uh, Phillies to the playoffs two years in a row. Uh, he never got to win his World Series, which was his the goal that he wanted uh, so badly when he was leaving Toronto. But uh, he, um, uh, I think that I think that people in the states will certainly remember him as a Philly.
1: Ken Fidland, long time Blue Jay writer with the Toronto Sun. I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this.
2: Okay, I wish it was under better circumstances. Well,
1: no, yeah, absolutely. But uh, listen, I, nonetheless, I do appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, it is. Uh, it is sad. I mean, uh, for all kinds of reasons, um, baseball and otherwise. You know, when an, when someone famous, it was interesting today on Twitter in the wait to see because the the plane that was in his name had crashed, and everybody knew that, and that was going around that a plane owned by Roy Halladay has crashed. And it was unclear who was the pilot of that plane. And people are saying, oh, geez, I hope it's not Roy Halladay. Oh, geez, I hope it's not Roy Halladay. And then someone tweeted out something I thought that was very astute. And they said, well, yes, we would love it for it not to be Roy Halladay. But what you're really cheering for then is for someone else to be dead. We don't want anybody to die in a plane crash, but we do when it is someone who is famous, when it's someone we've followed, when it's someone we've cheered for, when it's someone that we have felt a, an affinity for, it does see, it does clearly matter more to us. And it is very sad today. If you're a baseball fan, if you've been a Jays fan, there is a piece of maybe your childhood, maybe whatever that feels like it's gone and then it's the amazing thing about sports it it works the same in entertainment if this was remember when Buddy Holly well some of you may or may not remember but when Buddy Holly died or when Elvis died or when Jimi Hendrix died or Janis Joplin died or whomever you feel like something is missing Uh, the other thing a couple things Uh, one of the odd coincidences now the top two pitchers for the 2003 Toronto Blue Jays, have both now passed away in separate small plane crashes. Roy Halladay today, Corey Lytle a few years ago. Remember that name? Corey Lytle. His plane, very small plane, crashed into a building in New York City a number of years ago. Uh, But the other thing, just to um, sort of wrap this Roy Halladay connection up, when the Jays finally traded Roy Halladay, they traded him, obviously, to the Philadelphia Phillies. They got three guys back in that trade, They got Kyle Drabeck, who was a pitcher. They got catcher Travis Darnot. And they got an outfielder named Michael Taylor. Well, Drabeck stayed with the Jays for a while, never really panned out. Eventually was waived, got picked up by the White Sox. He went to a few other teams, I think. I don't even know if he's still in baseball. Travis Darnot, the catcher, was traded as part of the deal to get R.A. Dickey to come to the Blue Jays. Dickey is gone, so that branch of the tree is now cut off. And Bradley Michael, or sorry, Michael Taylor, the outfielder, was immediately swapped to Oakland for a third baseman named Brett Wallace, who was later traded for an outfielder named Anthony Gose, who played for the Jays briefly, you may recall, and then was traded for a second baseman named Devon Travis or Devin Travis, who is often injured but is still with the Blue Jays. So today, there is still a a a, a chain of some kind, connecting Roy Halliday to the Toronto Blue Jays in the person of Devin Travis. He is the last link, if you follow the trade and the timeline, he is the last link of Roy Halladay to the Toronto Blue Jays. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. 12,000, I think it's 12,000 teachers and faculty, um, 12,000 college professors, instructors, counselors, and librarians have been on strike since October 15. I've, I'm, I I'm started out frustrated for the students. I've become only more frustrated for the students. More and more, I just find that we go through this seemingly every year, every year and a half, every two years, not the colleges necessarily, a teacher strike of some kind, elementary teachers, high school teachers, college teachers, and what makes me furious about this is that it's always the students who are the pawns, who are the collateral damage, who are the ones who are forced to suffer. And it's intentional. These things don't happen outside of the school year. They wait until they can hold the students hostage. And I want to mention that I've said this many times on the show before. My, my beef is generally not with the teachers themselves. My beef is with the unions that are using the students as collateral damage. Of course, some of the teachers, many maybe of the teachers, vote for those unions and support what the union or d- unions are doing. I get that. But there's also a lot of teachers that would happily go back and try and work this out properly and really, really care for the students and would not want this to happen and, quite frankly, feel badly that it is. You know that. I know that. But over and over and over, as I say, it seems like every year or year and a half or two years, we have another one of these where we're talking about students being held out there, being held out to dry, being hung out to dry with no, they have no leverage. They have no ability in, in cases of elementary school students. It's the parents who are being held out to dry. And. What happens? Well, what happens is because the students are being used as pawns and because the students are being used as collateral damage, the government panics and gives the teachers unions pretty much all they want. That's what happens. That's how these things end. The teachers unions, in this case, in the elementary and the high school, they're not dumb people they get, hey, if we can really inconvenience the students as much as humanly possible, pressure will build on the government and they will give us everything we want. But this is just so completely unfair to the students. So completely unfair to the students. 500,000 of them sitting out there with no classes, watching their semester fritter away. Several weeks ago, several, yeah, several weeks ago, we were chatting with, remember we had the student on who had started this petition to make sure they were going to get a refund on their tuition? Well, there's still, that I know of, there's still been no promises of that. We don't even know if they're going to get their tuition back, we, we hope. At that time, we were told, well, don't worry about that because we're going to get their school year in. We're going to get their semester in, even if we have to keep school open a little later. Well, at this point, I mean, are you going to run right through Christmas? Or are you going to continue after Christmas and then run a month or month and a half if it goes that long into the summer vacation? What about the fact that the students have to, many of them, work to pay for their tuition, who need to go have summer jobs, who may have something lined up to, in fact, help them with the career they're trying to chase? It's not as simple as just saying, ah, whatever. We'll, we'll get to you when we get to you. You can, you can wait for us. We'll help you, but don't worry. We'll get, that's not, no, that's not how this works. That's not right. That's not fair. What do you think about this? 905 645 or star 9900. Whose side are you taking on this one right now? Do you, put it another way, do you care? Because if you don't have a kid in college, and as it turns out, I don't. So I don't have a dog in this fight that way. I don't have blood in the water in this particular case. But so for some people, it's no big deal, I suppose. But who, who do you side with in this? I am just tired. I am tired of the teachers, and I'm, I'm counting this as a teacher's union, even though technically it's not really in the same category, but I'm tired of the teacher's unions holding kids, holding young people, holding students hostage. It's not right. It's not fair. Interestingly, by the way, that, to, that uh, petition that was being signed, It's up to 127,481 people have signed this petition demanding that they get a refund on their tuition when, when this is done. They should get a refund on their tuition plus interest, quite frankly. But there's the next point. How, if this thing works the way teacher strikes generally work, as I say, the government will panic. We're getting closer to a provincial election. Kathleen Wynne doesn't want a college strike to take up a whole semester it's never happened before that a semester has been lost. She's not going to want that to happen so eventually when the pressure builds and the pressure builds and the pressure builds, they'll give pretty much everything that the teachers the professors, the instructors want that's how this thing works but what the instructors want or at least what their unions want apparently is going to cost the taxpayer $250 million extra a year. Where's that money coming from? Well you know what it's not out of Kathleen Wynne's pocket. It's not out of any ruling government's pocket. It's out of our pocket and out of the students' pockets who have to now pay even greater tuitions if they go there. So the grants to go to schools and the tuitions are going to go up. Students, not only now have they potentially lost a number of weeks, depending on how it goes, but now when they do go back, chances are their tuitions are going to go up to call, to cover whatever is given. Or... Or the government will say, well, no, we are going to protect our students from having to pay greater tuitions, and then you know where that money's coming from? Well, from the same pot, because how many of these students, many of them are paying their own way, but a lot of other ones, mom or dad, are helping. And you know what? Mom or dad's taxes are going to go up. Or when they finish college and they get out into the workforce and they start paying taxes, guess what? They're going to have more taxes to pay, one way or another. You end up paying for it. This is how things work. This is how taxes work. They're not... They're not hidden. They're not lost. You pay for it. I'm I'm just tired. I am tired of all these work stoppages affecting kids. It seems to me to be unfair. It seems to be mean-spirited. I know that it obviously is effective. And why is it effective? Because it holds kids hostage. That's how it works. So if you're a college student right now, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? Well, it turns out, interestingly enough, that we have one right here on the other side of the glass. Ben is a college student right now. What do you, I mean, uh, you're working here, which good for you because you have a job in the evenings. But what are all your classmates? What are, your, what are all your friends doing when the, when the strike is on?
0: Uh, actually, nothing. It's as simple as that. They're doing nothing because they're not in class.
1: And because you don't know when it's going to end... You can't go out necessarily and get yourself a full-time job saying, okay, I can work until the beginning of next semester because you don't know. You could go back in two days. And that, that's the biggest
0: problem is the fact that I don't know anything. I end up getting an email whenever the college wants to give us emails and say, hey, nothing's happened. We want to suspend the strike. Like they actually sent us an email that said, we asked them to suspend the strike and they said, no. First off, do the colleges understand how a strike works? We inconvenience you. And then you will give in to the demands, and ultimately everything resumes. So saying, let's suspend the strike, uh, that's kind of not how it
1: works. Well, that you know what that was? That was a PR move to say, hey, we're willing to go ahead and protect the students here. That's the most annoying
0: thing, is then then they turn around and they don't give the demands to the teachers of, hey, you're putting in work and you're not being compensated. Well, Yeah, that's kind of how work goes. So what happens,
1: Ben, if, now again, you've got a job here. Yes. But for a lot of your classmates, if the, Ben's got to grab a phone, so I'll just keep talking for a second. But what happens if this thing goes on for another month, another month and a half? And even if they give a refund on tuition, which I would absolutely expect they would, it would be immoral to not but even if they give a refund if this was to take a full semester which has never happened before but if this was to cost a full semester or most of a semester when should a student then be expected to work to go to school all through summer to make it up no cuz then how are they paying for their college for the rest of the year they need time to make the money they need that time to make the money it just it's it's completely it's completely unfair to the students and again for 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 people like Ben so let's say now you have to do an extra semester at the end of this thing yeah you got to go back for another so as well you know what you've you've tried to line up jobs there's people it is it is intentionally it is intentionally inconveniencing the students that's all this is doing that's all this is doing the students are pawns in this fight As they are when the elementary teachers go out, as they are when the high school teachers go out, and they know that, and they know that that's the effective leverage, that's the effective fulcrum they have, because people don't want students to be inconvenienced, and that will be the pressure point that will cause the government to give in. And what will the government give in with? Not the government's money. It's not the government's money. The government has no money of its own. The government literally has not one dime of its own. The government is negotiating with our money so the very students who are being inconvenienced, eventually they and their parents and their families will be further taxed or further charged just for the privilege of allowing them to go back into school. Now, some people, I understand... Uh, there are some issues in this discussion that are worth, certainly worth having. I I am not, by the way, sitting here arguing that teachers should never have raises, that teachers should not have some security in their job. I, I am not arguing that at all. It just seems to me that if you're talking about a difference of $250 million a year for colleges, we're not talking about, hey, let's be... Um, Let's do this incrementally over a whole lot of years and little by little, we'll try and work towards that. No, this is, this is going for it. This is going for and, and making sure that this is going to be very, very difficult. But anyway, what happens when, when let's say this thing goes on for another three weeks, which wouldn't surprise me whatsoever. What, what then for you and your classmates?
0: Quite literally, we are going to sit around and we're going to wait, cross our fingers. And eventually, like you said, we're going to get taxed or tuition raises. It's one or the other because the government's not going to do it. And anything. what
1: happens if they say you gotta come back in the summertime to take your course to catch up? Which they probably will because as of right now, this semester we're currently
0: in has been pushed to January. It's going to extend into January. What that means about like a Christmas break beats me.
1: But You know what you know what else I'll say about this? And this is the other thing that years ago, I had to take my car in for a repair, and when I called ahead of time, they told me bring it in at nine. No, they said, bring it in at 10 and we'll have it out by two. It's going to be a four hour job. I said, okay. And they told me, they gave me a quote on what it was going to be based on four hours of labor starting at 10 AM. So I take it in, I get there at 10 or a little before 10. And by 1130, they still have not taken my car into the garage. They've been backed up. So I go to the front desk and I said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to leave because I have an appointment at 2.30. You said it would be done by 2. I can't, you don't. I don't have time for it to be done anymore. So let's reschedule. And the guy goes, oh, no, no, wait a second. We'll get it done by 2. And I said, wait, you quoted me a price that required four hours of labor. And now you're saying you can do it in two hours of labor. So what you're telling me is that you, first of all, didn't need all that time. It was a ripoff and you could have done a lot more. You're, You're giving me the gears. Well." My long way of getting to it is we've also heard, oh, no, we'll get this in. We'll squeeze in the stuff. If you're at a college and let's say they settled tomorrow and they say, we just need an extra week to cram this in. Well, then what does it say about the curriculum? If so many of these courses could lose three weeks and make it up in one week, what that says to me is, why aren't you teaching more? Why aren't you giving more value for the money to begin with? If, if you can teach in one week what you were planning to teach in three weeks, why aren't you doing that anyway?
0: That's actually the hard thing about that is that they're going to condense those three weeks. So it's not even the matter of teaching. It's the fact that you're going to be just, here's, here's your stack of papers. Pick and choose what you
1: can do on time. It's like, because here you go. Here's three weeks of work in one week. Rick just wrote in, I'm absolutely on the side of the students. This strike sickens me. It's nothing less than selfish greed which perpetuates the behavior of these emetic union members. It's a new word, emetic. I'm not even sure what that means. I've got to look that one up. We need a government with testicular fortitude to legislate them back to work with no concessions. Unfortunately, we don't have such a government. See, I'm not... Again, Rick is Rick is hardline. I'm reasonably hardline. I'm not arguing they should never get anything. I'm not arguing that the, the teachers... Sorry, cough break. I'm not arguing that the teachers should be given nothing and should never get raises and never get anything. But his idea about saying, you know what, uh, you're hurting the students. I don't think you can legislate them back to work. I don't think that you can argue. Well, can you argue that teachers, that professors, that instructors are an essential service? Because that's really who in this province you're allowed to legislate back to work. If the police said we're not going to work, you could legislate them back to work because or fire fighters, but I don't know if you could legislate instructors back to work unless they were an essential service. Maybe that's what you do. You say all teachers in this province from kindergarten, junior kindergarten to postgraduate school are essential services, no strikes. wonder how that would play. I know who would be happy for it, all the parents of students and students. I know who wouldn't be happy for it. Love to hear your thoughts. Radley at 900chml.com. You're entitled to have a completely different point of view. I will listen to you. I just love to have the conversation because it seems to me this is grossly, grossly unfair for our students as it is every time this happens. And it happens way, way too often. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show weeknights from 7 to 9 on
0: AM 900
1: CHML. Late last week... We passed the 100 days before the Winter Olympics opens milestone. I think it was Thursday that that was happening. So now in just under 100 days, our athletes are going to be heading to South Korea, to Pyeongchang to compete there. And that would normally be, we will be, maybe we are very excited, but we would be probably even more talking about it, more excited, but we know what's going on in that region of the world. So what should we be expecting when they get there? Michael Haney is the director of the International Centre of Olympic Studies at Western University. He's been on this show before. We love having him back. Uh, He joins us again. Michael, thanks for doing this tonight.
3: Sure thing. Thanks for having me.
1: Now, when I say what would we expect, normally what I'd be talking about is medal performances and our performance on the field by Canada's athletes, and we will get to that. But in this case, as I say, the biggest spotlight on the planet is going to be played out just 40 kilometers from North Korea. When you look at this, should athletes be concerned by what's going on?
3: That is extremely difficult to say. I mean, we're all concerned. We know the, the, the amount of tension that surrounds that area. And an Olympic venue, as you said, which is, what, 40 kilometers to the south of the divine, dividing line between North and South Korea. So... Well, let's start with the IOC. The IOC is concerned, as we can imagine, but they do not have a plan B. It's too late now to shift the venue. There's just too much organizational work involved. The IOC is committed to hosting the games in Pyeongchang and in South Korea. Um, The politics are, of course, pretty volatile right now. On the other hand, as we know, President Trump is in South Korea right now, and so far he has been fairly conciliatory as far as his own political statements are concerned and also true for North Korea there have not been any belligerent statements for the last four or five weeks so I would assume that there are some behind the scenes negotiations or attempts to establish contacts going on which might play well for the Olympic Games but the concerns remain of course
1: well and look, the reality is that I think we would expect that regardless of who is, you know, what crazy dictator may have his finger over the buttons of whatever, chances are nothing is going to happen. That I mean, I think that's a fair thing. Chances are nothing is going to happen. And yet the flip side, I can't help but think that if Kim Jong-un was ever going to do something that is completely nutty, having thousands of athletes in the eyes of the entire world this this would be a chance to make a mark this would be this it's right in his backyard basically this is a chance to do something that would really be spectacular in the worst possible way
3: in the worst possible way you you have it exactly right in that sense but it would be of course a suicidal mark and it would lead to the eradication of two countries we could almost certainly assume and if you want to spin this line of thinking forward, then you would also have to say that the North Koreans, in fact, have no stake in the Olympic Games because they are not feeling any team, you know. So, but having said all of this, that is probably our worst nightmare, and it's an extremely unlikely thing to occur.
1: Well, and we did we not have terrorist uh, concerns around Athens, because it was right after nine eleven, and in London there were terror concerns? I mean, th- this is not new, is it?
3: It isn't. It it is not. Terror concerns always surround the games because they are such a high-profile political target, as you just observed. Uh, But this is a state-level debate that we're having in in particular between the United States administration and the North Korean leadership. Um, So in that sense, whatever may develop, you would probably see coming from the front. It wouldn't be a surprise attack such as a terrorist event. From that point of view, the politics are more visible. The tensions are high, and I'm not sure that that might not induce some athletes simply to stay away it's a very uncertain situation
1: have we ever had an olympics before where that was the circumstance because again we talked about we have had terror threats but to have something that is a games that is essentially placed in the middle of the most volatile or one of the most volatile spots on earth have we ever had that before
3: well yes and no but don't forget the cold war when we had the olympics <laughs> played out between the eastern and the Western blocks who were looking at each other from behind the barrels of their atomic weapons, you know. So it hasn't never been as volatile, but the 1980 games, the 1984 games, even still with the carryover effect from the Russian, the Soviet Afghan invasion, uh, those were political tensions with threats of uh, uh, weapons exchanges that have permeated even the Olympic space back during the Cold War.
1: I did read today a couple stories on different newspapers online that said that certain countries, Great Britain particularly, uh, are preparing evacuation procedures just just in case. And I'm wondering, though, would they not do that for every Olympics? Would their delegation not have some sort of plan if we have to get all of our people out of there, here's what we're going to do, whether it's in North Korea, South Korea, or anywhere else?
3: Frankly, I don't think so, actually, because most most of the energy... On that particular file goes into the prevention of terrorist attacks. And that is what the relevant authorities and services of the different countries collaborate on behind the scenes in a way. uh, The ROC has a security concern and and administrative detail dealing with that. Um, These kind of things are planned years in advance. And that is where most of the energy is expended. But you don't, think, level... you don't think you don't think that when
1: Canada went to Sochi, let's say, just pick one, when Canada went to Sochi, that the Canadian government or the delegation said, "Okay, in the event that something goes horribly awry, here's how we're going to keep our athletes safe." That they didn't give their own plan. That doesn't exist.
3: It, it might exist, but it would never be admitted because politically, that would be such a fraught statement and admission to make in public. Uh, because it would cast dispersions on the hosting country, of course, and the capability of, in that case, the Russian administration to deliver security. So these things, if they are planned at that level, they would have a very high clearance level, certainly.
1: I want to stress again that I really believe, and and I I think you do as well, but I'm not sure, but I really don't expect anything to happen because of what you said. I think it would be crazy to do something here because it would be the end of north korea probably but if anything does happen is would that be the end of the olympics and and not just with these particular olympics I've, i've often wondered this that if there was to be a major terrorist attack on the olympic venue where where the eyes of the world are would that be essentially the end of the olympics or would they carry i don't mean those olympics but down the road would they keep going would they try to do it again or would it be just too dangerous
3: I think they would do it again. The Olympic idea and the Olympic administration are incredibly resilient. Don't forget, we have actually had terrorist attacks during the 1972 games in Munich. Of course. And that didn't even lead to a cessation of the games. The IOC thought it's over for a day, and then they let the games continue.
1: Uh,
3: we've had similar issues in Mexico in 1968, and whether you want to call that a terrorist attack or not is a political interpretation. Those games continued in Atlanta. Atlanta, well, of sort course, of. Yes, As, uh, well, yes. I mean, it was aborted, but <laughs> indeed, uh, if anything were to happen in the Koreas, I don't know that the idea and the movement would survive that, because it would be an order of magnitude larger. And anything that you and I can imagine, Uh, I am in agreement with you. I do not expect anything to happen. The temperature seems to have cooled off somewhat. The IOC and the Olympic movement have continued on after terrorist attacks during previous games. But this is a different order of magnitude, hypothetically, of course.
1: I do have to ask you this, because it strikes me when we start looking at where the Olympics have been recently. We had them in Beijing not that long ago, where we heard of stories of human rights violations and people being rounded up out of their homes to make way for stuff. We've had them in... Sochi where we have with uh, what's that movie that just came out um, all about the drug cheating in uh, mm,
3: I know, Icarus I Icarus.
1: Yeah, so we yeah, know yeah. about we, we know about the massive scale cheating and we know about 50 billion or something dollars of Russian taxpayers money being spent We had games in Rio place there where the, the country basically is impoverished and b- the government is broke, but they wanted them to spend billions on facilities And now they're putting it here right next to, again, one of the more dangerous spots. What is the IOC thinking when they keep giving these games to some of the, seems the craziest places you could possibly give it in the world?
3: Difficult places indeed. And you named all the problems that the IOC is acutely aware of. And one of the consequences of all of this is that the games have lost, uh, the IOC certainly has lost credibility and quite a bit of its shine. And that, in turn, makes it ever more difficult for the IOC to find suitable venues. I don't think that many of these venues that we see booked for the next couple of games were the IOC's first choice. But as you and the listeners know, candidates in candidate cities have withdrawn all over the place. The IOC is in a very tight spot and the credibility of the event isn't what it used to be.
1: But why did they give it then to so many places? Now, I know they didn't expect the outcome to be what it was, but were they so believing in their power that they could really change the world, and that's why we put it in the places we did?
3: Well, some of it is merely pragmatic. You go to the places where your reception is most welcoming and where the facilities and the potential infrastructure can be built up, with the greatest possibility of success. And there we have to give the South Koreans huge credit, of course. The infrastructure is 1A, the facilities are 1A, but for the IOC, the pie gets ever smaller. Candidate cities are simply not stepping up, so uh, you get to be a little less selective in who you would throw your lot in with.
1: Let's move away from politics for just a minute to a more pleasant thing, I think, which is actually sports, which uh, sometimes we forget the oh, Olympics yeah. are going to be about. I know. It's, it's hard to remember sometimes, isn't it, Michael?
3: <laughs> Where's that?
1: <laughs> uh, but with these games being on the other side of the world, and it's 13 hours ahead, so right now it's 9.20 in the morning there. Uh, there are a lot, maybe most of the activities, most of the sports that are going to be played contested are going to be done while we are asleep and so many people unlike previous olympics or most previous olympics much of what we're going to see unless you're a diehard who stays up all night is going to be taped and repackaged probably how do you think that's going to affect viewership numbers interest all that kind of thing back here
3: i think it will diminish viewership numbers you put your finger right on it the South Korean organizers find that themselves right now, they just cannot get rid of their tickets. They have sold, what, about 30% of their overall ticket allocations, and 70% of those, in turn, they try to sell abroad, and they just don't have any takers. So it's like, an imagine there's an Olympics and nobody's going, yeah. you know. Uh, and that might also be the case with the media coverage that we see on tape delay here in Canada, especially as we know, since our key sport, hockey, will not be represented by the best of the best.
1: Well, now, NBC, of course, is going to love this, because they love to package all the stories with soft piano music and a a tale about how every single athlete had a mother who died of a horrible illness and overcame being run over by a truck and on and on. I mean, they love that stuff, so this is perfect for them. But we here in Canada, with the CBC and with CTV and the Consortium and all the rest, we have grown very used to having all of our sports available live.
3: Yeah, well, it just can't happen unless you're a diehard. And I think that will also show in the balance sheet at the end when all of this gets tallied up. These will be one of the least attractive uh, Olympics for the viewership uh, that I can remember.
1: Michael, Will, if, if you're correct, and, and I tend to believe you really are, uh, if viewership does diminish because of this, does that... Does that also drag down the expectations we have on our athletes, or, or are those two things entirely separate? We're still—are we still going to be expecting our athletes to be one of the top two or three countries, or if we're not watching, we don't really care as much?
3: Well, that's what I'm afraid of. That this time round, the Canadian sports fans really don't care overly much. Hockey is not going to be overly exciting. Uh, figure skating is good for the Canadians. Short track might be good for the Canadian athletes interest will pick up if at the beginning of the games Canadian athletes are successful then we might also find more people willing to get up in the middle of (laughs) ungodly hours to watch (laughs) the live feed you know but if for the first let's say three or four days we don't get any Canadian athletes meddling then the the interest will leverage off right there and so be on a pretty flat curve in terms of take
1: up. All the professors at Western where you are, Western University, will be thrilled when the students are bleary-eyed and falling asleep in class because they (laughs) didn't stay up till four in the morning to watch a figure skating event.
3: Of course, no medals for Canada.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so all the professors, no medals, No, we don't want any medals.
3: (laughs) No, no, indeed. Uh, Well, then nobody would be watching, but of course I hope that the Canadian athletes will win many medals uh, because it would also be good for the profile of these Sports back home in Canada
1: here. Well, last thing then before I let you go, if if all that were to play out as we've described, so that not as many people are watching, and so then we don't have as much interest if Canada's not doing as well, does that have a? Do you believe that would have a carryover effect to the next Olympics? Because we we were pretty good, we were okay, and then we started that own the podium plot uh, mm-hmm. program, which gave us a huge boost. But it took time for that thing to really get showing the fruit of those things. If that were to die off, it would be very difficult, would it not, to get it rolling? It's it's much easier to keep it rolling than to start it again.
3: Of course. These things come in very long cycles, and you're on the up curve of your cycle if you can maintain your funding, and that in turn depends on return by your team in, in the medal standings. So there's some very clear connections there, because much of that funding, of course, comes out of government sources and government revenues are more easily attracted when your team has been successful at the previous games. And in Vancouver, Canada did a fantastic job. Sochi was very good. I'm not quite sure what to expect this time round. But the money curve has flattened out already, which means in the future you can see some of these sports having difficulty maintaining their
1: profile. What Canada needs, because we're always best when we introduce a new sport. When synchronized swimming came in, we dominated. And then when snowboarding came in, we dominated. And when, da- when uh, trick skiing, when freestyle skiing came in, we need to start creating new sports every time so we can win more medals.
3: <laughs> that's a brilliant idea. I know,
1: I'm, I'm on it. <laughs> Winters the startup cost. <laughs> yeah, pol- polar bear dip synchronized swimming.
3: <laughs> Excellent
1: idea, as there are, long as I only have to watch. <laughs> yeah, that's right, gold medal for Canada for the first two Olympics, then we move on to something else. Uh, Michael Haney, director of the International Center of Olympic Studies at Western University. Always love having you on. Thanks for the time tonight.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: That, Ben, I think, I may have just stumbled onto something polar bear dip synchronized swimming it's going to be a very short program you basically dive in you d- both like together thrust a leg into the air and then spin around and then you jump out and it's whoever does it better in those 4 seconds you're in the water wins and just don't slip on the ice well you know that could be you could you could make it more exciting by like running and sliding on your butt into the ice together synchronized you know s- slide splash we as a country go back and look i'm not making this up historically Canadians have excelled, have done amazingly well any time a new event is brought in. Go back to the very first, I think it was 84 when Synchronized Swimming was in for the first time. It was either 84 or 88. I think it was 84 in Los Angeles. Carolyn Waldo and Sylvie Frechette were our two stars. And we just kicked butt all over the all over the pond, all over the, the pool. I don't know if you remember this. Now, you wouldn't, Ben. You weren't even born, but... There was a woman for the U.S. team whose first name I can't remember. Her last name was Sprague, who was the wife of Toronto Blue Jays third baseman, Ed Sprague. And she was the silver medalist. But we we did amazingly well in synchronized swimming, including in an, I don't think this event still stands because it really is one of the more ridiculous events that ever existed in the Olympics, which was solo synchronized swimming. Solo, synchronized swimming. Just think through the concept of that. Anything you do, you're in synchronicity with yourself. It's impossible not to be synchronized. Unless you were to have a a seizure of some kind in the water, how could you possibly not be in sync? But anyway, there was individual synchronized swimming. Uh, We did well in that. We did well in group and duo and everything else. Um, When we brought in snowboarding, with Ross Rebliati. remember Ross Rebliati, This again, before your time, uh, he was the guy who, eventually, tested positive for marijuana and said, "Oh yeah, I'd been in a party before the night before, dude, and I got secondhand marijuana smoke, dude." Um, he kept his medal, but yeah, Ross Rebliati was our like our toking gold medalist, and then other countries started to take it up, and we still do okay, but not as well. Then uh, the Moguls. And Canada kicked butt all the moguls, and then other countries started to catch on. Every single time that trampoline, oh, trampoline in the Summer Olympics with Rosie McLennan. At, you know, we are awesome in trampoline. Now, Rosie McLennan has actually maintained it, so good for her. But that's another example. We are great when they bring in a new event. It's almost like they forget to tell the other countries until like two weeks before. But Canada's got a one-year warm-up period. So we can find someone who can do this. And then 2 weeks before the Olympics, they tell you know people in the Chechen area, "Oh, by the way, there's going to be synchronized billiards at next year's Olympics." And they have to frantically go around and find someone who can do synchronized billiards. But Canada's already been practicing for 2 years, and so we got that one, but 2 4 years hence, when it's time to do it again, well now they've actually prepared and we're kind of snookered, pardon the pun. Didn't even think of that one when I started we are great at the new event. So if we can think of any great new winter events, other than, and I like my idea, polar bear dip synchro swimming. That I think is a terrific idea. I don't know what else we could have. Oh, you know what we should bring back? This isn't a new event. And it's going to require a certain age of listener to know what I'm talking about. But once upon a time, On Wide World of Sports, the old ABC show on Saturday or Sunday afternoon, whenever it was, they had barrel jumping. Now, I don't know if you ever saw barrel jumping. This was one of the greatest events in the history of sports. You'd have some guy in some sort of one-piece outfit with a really rudimentary little non-protective helmet and skates, and they would have barrels like literally barrels on the ice and you would do a lap around the ice and then cut short and come up the middle and have to leap over the barrel and on your skates and then if you cleared it you would go to two barrels and three barrels and on and on which invariably ended up with the poor schmuck getting to about five barrels not clearing it landing on it almost breaking his back but it was awesome it was great television that would be an Olympic sport That I would watch. And Canada would be terrific at that for the first time through. We would kick butt at barrel jumping. In fact, I think all the wide world of sports barrel jumping stuff was from Canada. And most of the guys had smoked a pack of DeMaurier's and got hopped up on six or seven Molson Canadians to get up the nerve and then went and did it. They were all named Guy or Pierre, maybe Eve. They were all French Canadians and they all were, you know, loosened up and ready to go. And man, it was entertaining. That's what we need to bring back. Barrel jumping for the Winter Olympics. Let me know if you're with me on the barrel jumping. That's a forgotten sport that we need to have. Ice fishing. How about ice fishing for for a Winter Olympic sport that we could do? It would be Canada versus Minnesota in the finals. That would be a good one. Zamboni racing. I think Zamboni racing could be good. Might be slightly dangerous, but I think it would be it would be pretty good. Um Man, what else? I have often argued, I've often suggested that we should have figure skating but as a survivor sport. That you have all the figure skaters on the ice at the same time doing their routine, and as you're jumping and spinning and everything, whoever falls down is eliminated. So, the last person standing gets to be the champion. Royal Rumble figure skating. Royal Rumble figure skating. Yes. Yes. That's exactly what it should be. But I'm going back to my very first one, though. The Polar Bear Dip Synchronized Swimming Co ed. Just to be fair, let's, this is where men can now participate. I'm telling you that there's ratings to be found there. There's gold in them hills. Go there. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.